This podcast is brought to you by Primary Intelligence, the leader in win-loss analysis, focused on helping businesses uncover the unique story on how each sales rep can win more deals. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on another rousing edition of Sales Intelligence Weekly, brought to you by Primary Intelligence. I'm Ryan Queller. Okay, hey everyone. There seems to be a common theme throughout our episodes. I mean, there's, there's lots of common themes, but the one we're going to focus on today is trust. As salespeople, we, we got to build trust with our customers. Whether we're prospecting, conducting discovery calls, or if we're deep into pitching you know, to the buying committee, building trust is a vital piece to increasing our win rates. But, but, however, building trust can be a struggle for sales reps, and this directly impacts their pipeline and their close rates. Now, as the buyer's journeys continues to shift to a digital experience, sales reps are having to find new ways to build trust with prospects. So how can reps, this is the big question, how can reps build those strong customer relationships of trust throughout the sales process in this new brave new world of digital sales experience? Chewing on this with me today, is Mr. Jamie Shanks, author of Social Selling Mastery and CEO of Pipeline Signals and Sales for Life. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right, my friend, give us the dirt a little bit. Give us the dirty. Tell us about the Jamie. Who who are you? You know, tell us about your book. Uh, I am a pretty simple guy, actually. I'm up here at my, what we call in Canada, our cottage. So it's our lake house. I... I'm a cottage guy who also loves sales. Uh, I'm the guy that like country boots on the weekend and uh, a pair of loafers and a blazer during the week at a conference kind of guy. Um, But for me, uh, I've been in sales basically my whole life and um, I, I love it. And I love giving back to the sales community. I've spent over a decade either on the enablement side, or now as a SaaS software or managed service, helping sellers along their their journey, primarily helping them with generating pipeline. That's my real passion. So, you know, why? Why is that your passion? I mean, why why is the generating the pipeline the passion? How'd that happen? So I, uh, I used to live in Australia. I did my master's degree there, and I was there for two years. And when I came back, I thought I had my MBA. I'm a genius. Everybody's going to want to hire me. It turns out no one wanted to hire me. Now, this is during 2004, 2005. The market wasn't as hot then. I moved to Toronto, Canada. I'm not from Toronto. So I moved here. And uh, the only company, it took me 11 months to get a job. And uh, the Bank of Shanks, aka my parents, were not going to fund this anymore. And the Bank uh, of Shanks. Yes. The Bank of Shanks. That's your next podcast. You know, the title of your next podcast right there, The Bank of Shanks. Okay. Yeah, the, my mom had actually, so my birthday is October 30th. And I still remember this. I was deep in this interview, uh, interview process with this one commercial real estate company. It was the only company that would give me an opportunity, except it was 100% commission. And I went through like six interviews over months. And like I'm begging for basically a free job. Like I'm not getting paid, I'm getting, yeah. So anyways, long and short, my mother had said on November 1, Bank of Shanks ends. And it just happened. I got a job just before my birthday, ended up working in commercial real estate. And this commercial real estate firm 
It's typically filled with those who were in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who were previously professionals who go into the commercial real estate space who can talk to CEOs and CFOs. That's primarily who you sell leasing to and, and have business conversations. But here's me at 25. They didn't trust me. So they threw me on the phones. And I was basically one of their first experiments of pure business development. I had a sheet of paper in front of me. And my goal was to have 12 contacts, 12 conversations a day, one booked meeting every single day. And then I would bring on a more senior broker into the deal. And it turns out I was really good at it. I liked it. I was creative in my phone scripts. You know, I followed their, you know, they were very structured. They had a you know, feature advantage and benefit. And they had SBS and GBS. These are frameworks to cold calling. But I had great calls to action. I had ways of opening rapport and, and, and closing opportunities. And anyway, so long and short, I just fell in love with business development. It, to me, it wasn't as hard as people made it out to be. I love that. Uh, and, and by the way, just a total side note, totally off script, out of, you know, out of left field here, but that, that idea of creativity, finding something that makes, that unlocks your own personal creativity is like one of the secrets to life. Um, you know, if you can find that, I don't care what it is. I, I really don't. But if you can find that thing, that's that's what's going to bring joy and going to drive whatever excellence you have in you. It's going to bring it out. So I'm so glad you found that because this is very very important for us to talk about with our sales, with our with our listeners, our salespeople. Okay, so Jamie, we're clearly talked to the right guy. Let's jump into the jump into this conversation. First, I want to talk about shifting and change. Okay, how have you? You've been, you've been in, been in the game a little bit. How have you seen relationships between prospects and sales reps change as the B2B buyer's journey has shifted to this digital experience? And it was, I mean, I am the actual use case for that shift. So if anyone that's listening, if you actually want to hear the longer version of this story, the preface to my first book, uh, Social Selling Mastery, it's maybe five to seven pages. I tell this actual story, but long and the short is by the time I was 30, I was then the VP of sales at a SaaS software company. Frankly, I thought I was the bee's knees. I had all the answers to everything. And so I was going to spin out and start a sales consulting firm. And my vision was no bigger than helping local Toronto small to medium businesses with pipeline development, business development. And I failed miserably because I was a complete ghost online. And now this is the year 2010 and 11. So imagine I'm on a call with you and we're, I'm trying to book a meeting or maybe we're doing a discovery call and we're even in the boardroom and you pull up your laptop and you Google the name, Jamie Shanks. I was nowhere to be found. It wasn't on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, hadn't written a blog. So I had no from your perspective, there was no reason to trust me on what I was saying. And it took me a while to figure this out. And through serendipity, there's a longer story of it, but I saw the power of LinkedIn and its ability to tackle both the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain. Left side of the brain is helps you collect information to make informed decisions. And the right side of the brain allows you to engage the customer in a bold and different way. And I saw this tool being able to do both. And I took advantage of that. I, I wrote content, I made videos, and I used it to engage people and so forth and, and mine intelligence uh, to build lists and so forth. So long of the short is 
I had to evolve to answer your question directly. I had to evolve then because the buyer, it was becoming caveat vendetur, let the seller beware that the buyer is informing themselves faster than you can inform them. That was 10 years ago. Now, like I'm the kind of, I'm the kind of entrepreneur where our pricing page is on our website. We're trying to make our website where it's basically business to consumer or product led growth, where give the answers to everything overtly online. Uh, You know, when you're making videos, there is no intellectual property that you need to hide. Everyone knows everything. Um, Your job is just to put it together in packages for them to understand how to get from point A to point B. So I know that's a a long-winded way of saying that the relationship is that the buyer, myself, accumulates most of my knowledge offline, not in front of the seller. The percentage of time, and Gardner has a study on this, the percentage of time at which I need you, the seller, to help me along that journey, you know, Gardner would, some would argue it's somewhere from like 13 to 33%. It's very little part of the sales process. I actually need to be speaking to you, the seller. Okay, so um, you, you just defined something that I, there's two things I want to go deeper into. Number one, uh, this evolution that you went through that started, you know, way back when you you said you're the you're the best use case. You know, you are the you are the story of. I am the guy. Yeah, 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 you're the guy. You know, look at me. Hey, I I had I was I had to evolve. Um, this idea of buyers sense making online. You called it understanding, right? It's it's self-educating. It's it's doing their own buying process online. This is one of the reasons why you're moving toward the product-led growth organization, right? Being product-led is, is a reason because you want to educate. You want to give them every opportunity to educate themselves around what they want to educate themselves. Qualify in, qualify out. So we're not wasting each other's time. We're not wasting time. Okay. So you're saying trust actually starts online digitally before you've even physically or you know virtually met you know how are how are buyers using data and analytics to 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 kind of formulate how they trust or give credibility to people before they even talk yeah and and there is this visual that gartner created that has helped me also articulate this to others but I am a buyer. I'm a CEO of two small businesses. And in my second company, Pipeline Signals, because it's built to scale and has been capitalized, I'm buying many things. And so I have the ability to talk to my peer-to-peer group. Um, That is both online through LinkedIn and Twitter, as an example. That is offline. I'm a member of Collective 54, a network of other CEOs in the professional services space. I I need to talk to my own buying committee, even though I'm the CEO. And even if I'm buying a $1,000 widget, it amazes me how small the ticket can be, yet the consensus buying still exists. So I need to talk to my internal stakeholders. I'll, of course, do a peer-to-peer review. I'll check out Glassdoor, G2 Crowd, Crunchbase, these data sources that help me triangulate, is this company for real? Is this company fake? So anyways, this there is this myriad of information I need to gather. And it's typically, I am finding 
my buying patterns are akin to my car buying behavior. I pick up my new car actually tonight. I bought a car on the weekend. Well, <laughs> I don't think I was in the dealership to speak to the sales rep more than five minutes. I knew every I knew everything about that car. I mean, the actual one that was on the lot and everything about that car. I knew the price I was willing. I knew everything. I walked in and just said, you either do this or we don't, or we don't do it. Within an hour, the paperwork was done. I switched plates and get the car tonight. And so I'm feeling that even in complex B2B, like I'm in, selling five and six figure deals, it's all becoming blended. Yeah. So um, that, and that's, I think, where the difficulty and I think where the confluence of, of pressures start to collide is in this idea. There's a lot of self-education online, a lot of data and analytics, all of those things to help triangulate position, like you said. Um, but oftentimes buyers come to the table with faulty paradigms or preconceived notions on how, you know, they're, they're out there searching for a solution. They don't know, they, they got preconceived notion on how things ought to be done. Maybe they addressed it, you know, 10 years ago, but things have evolved so much since then. They bring these paradigms to the table. They have self-educated, now cue salesperson. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm coming to the table as a buyer with all of these mounting pressures from the, the different um, committee members that I have to, to deal with and, and get to say yes to, to the business, the actual business that we're trying to solve for. How do we then take that relationship, right? How, how can sales reps then um, foster customer relationships, you know, um, in this complex, increasingly complex buying cycle? So I'm going to give you a story and then I'll give you ideas on how to solve it tactically. When I was in commercial real estate, I was paired up this was my first introduction to serve the person before serving yourself. And it will be amazing how they'll come back to help or become back to partner with you. So I got paired with this gentleman named Cam McDonald and he was the senior broker and I'm a junior broker. And I walk into his office. Hi Cam. Nice to meet you. And when I look at his desk, there is a stack of resumes like this on his desk. We're in commercial real estate. I have no idea why there's resumes on his desk. And after a while, I finally turned to Cam and I was like, I got to ask, what's with all the resumes on your desk? And he said, you don't understand it. We're not in commercial real estate. We're not helping companies lease new office space or get out of their existing office space. You're in the relation, you're in a people business. You're in a relationship business. And what I do is I help CFOs all around Toronto find new opportunities. I get and meet CFOs and I first help them find their next opportunity. The average CFO will work on one major real estate transaction in their entire career. Who do you think they're going to call when I help them get a job at bank XYZ and then the real estate deal comes up? It's me. And that I was 25 when I heard that and it stuck with me forever. And so tactically, I am when I start a relationship with a customer and maybe it's because I've been in professional services for most of my life. This becomes more natural than those that start in SaaS software. They sell product. They're used to 
you know, the waterfall metrics of the activity leading to milestones, milestones to outcomes, and that they don't really actually realize that they're dealing with humans. They just see it as widgets and boobobs that they're selling. Ones and zeros. Ones and zeros. And so for me, I really try to listen and dive into the real problem that a customer has. Now, in my world, I sell to other sellers and also marketing, but the real problem that they have is pipeline. Pipeline pipeline saves lives, essentially. And so what I'm listening for and what I understand is that you can only create value three ways. You can either make somebody money, save somebody money, or mitigate their risk. And so I really try to help them self-discover what they're... It's amazing how many CROs will come onto a call and they don't actually know their problem. They know a series of symptoms. They see some like wounds all over them, but they don't know, like they need a doctor to tell them, what is your core problem? And so there I try to triangulate. I am a part of a solution. There is no one magic bullet in my world to solving pipeline for everyone, but there are many pieces that can be assembled to help solve that problem. And I help them understand that I plus many other things can help you get to where you're going. So I hope that that helped answer the question, but I am constantly focused on the human being that I am working with and selling to. Uh, man, that's <laughs> sometimes people get lost. Sometimes sellers get lost in selling their product rather than helping people solve the problems that they're selling, they're selling to. And at the end of the day, if you can't solve one of those three issues in value creation, you, you got nothing. You got a product, and guess what? They're going to go straight to price, and it's going to be the, the the race to the bottom. It's not and end of story. I think you know they always talk about when you come out of when you come out of university. Sometimes there's two schools of thoughts. You either start a company right away because there's no opportunity cost of failure. You know you're living on ramen noodles anyways. You might as well start a company. And then the other is go work at a big company so you get big company experience. I would second that with dividing it in half and saying, I think it's really important at some point early in your career, when you have a choice to go working at Salesforce or selling for a professional services firm, because in professional services, you're actually going to learn what it's like to sell vaporware. You don't sell anything. You sell ideas, but most importantly, you sell yourself. That's all you do in professional services. And I think it's a real benefit for me, who's now jumped from professional services to now selling a real tangible product. I think there's some, some great skills that have come with me from ProServe into you know, SaaS or managed service. Yeah, no, I love that. Okay, let's, let's talk a little bit. Help me understand what is relationship intelligence? Okay, let's let's start with this, and then I'm a, I we're then going to peel into why is that impactful? Why is relationship intelligence so impactful when trying to increase win rate? Win yeah. rates. I can I can English. I promise. <laughs> so to help the audience think through, you have an account, and so in front of me I have my Yeti water bottle. Okay, Yeti is a prospect that you want to win. There is sales intelligence, fantastic, yeah. So there's sales intelligence that will help you understand, should you focus on Yeti today, not tomorrow, or Yeti versus Igloo Cooler? 
Because time management is the ultimate friend or foe for your sales team. And account selection and account prioritization is the ultimate opportunity or threat of what kind of hinders a seller. So with sales intelligence, there are some categories. The most popular category that you're all used to is something called buying intent. Buying intent is where somebody over at Yeti has raised their hand and said, I want to know more. Or they've Googled a keyword, frozen drinks. Or they have, as an example, downloaded an ebook on how to have a drink last for three days. So that's the form, that's a form of sales intelligence in which a key stakeholder, a person within Yeti has demonstrated, I want to know more. That's a piece to a puzzle. And unfortunately, marketing teams have become really over-indexed on this topic. And they've said, oh my God, sales teams, we just bought six cents Bombora demand-based name your name the vendor. And if you don't call your six QAs, if you don't call your your uh, buying intent leads, you're crazy. No, what it is, is it's a, it's a story. It's a piece to a puzzle. There is an adjacent piece of sales intelligence called relationships. And basically, human beings are the ones that make decisions in businesses. Companies don't make decisions. People do. And people go into a company, go up into a company, get promoted, or leave a company. And with them, priorities go in the door up the door and out of the door. And so by tracking the humans, you then track the leading indicators that will help you discern, is change about to happen in this business? Did my priority walk out the door or did a new priority come in the door? And is that a friend or a foe, an opportunity or threat? And so to make this tactical, as an example, reverse engineering your customer base and seeing where have my advocates left my customer base and gone into prospective accounts. Because I now have an asymmetrical competitive advantage in that account over my competition because my past relationship is just sitting there, new, looking for people, process, technology changes. So these are examples of yet another piece to a puzzle around your account-based story around Yeti. If somebody left my customer and went worked the chief revenue officer over at Snowflake or Microsoft, one of my customers, and went there, that opens a door for me. And so that's what we're focused in on is helping sellers give them the answers to the test and say, this is happening in your customer base. Run with this. Okay. So relationship intelligence. Help me understand, help our listeners understand why it's so impactful to help you increase your win rates. So there are many studies or statistics, so I don't want to be a, you know, a, a statistic junkie, but some will say somewhere between it is three to six times cheaper and easier to sell to somebody you've already sold to than it is to open up a door where nobody knows you. And remember we were talking offline for the call, the difference between, what did you call it? The gap between knowing and doing. The knowing gap and the doing gap. So this is my business, okay? So Pipeline Signals is the ultimate example of this. Intuitively, if I were to ask a chief revenue officer, head of sales ops, where do your best customers come from? Let's say, well, if you've been around long enough and you have a, a strong enough customer base and you have great net retention revenue scores, well, the answer is when somebody leaves one of our customers and goes into another business, yeah, they call us within six months. It's amazing. 
So intuitively, the knowledge is, you know, these are some of your best sales opportunities. The doing is that your sales team at scale are not and cannot possibly monitor your 1,000 customers and your 4,000 prospects and correlate and reverse engineer who is moving in, up, and out of every one of these businesses this week and where do the opportunities lie between you and then also doing this for your competitors and then wondering, does your competitor now have an opportunity in this account because of their relationships or do you? So that's why it's so important is you know that past customers open doors. The question is, are you doing anything about it? So um, at the, the root of any of those things in, up or out, right, of the organization, um, at the root of that, that's, that's code, n- not even thinly veiled, but it's change, right? We're talking about change points. Well, it right? is. It's, it's okay. compelling events, triggers, change, exactly. Okay. So what are the most important signals then or changes a B2B company should look for when they're doing their prospecting? Yeah. So um, order of operations, highest conversion by a country mile. Somebody leaves your existing customer base that is part of the buying committee. Like, so my world, I sell to sales and marketing. So sales and marketing leaders up and leave and they move into a prospective account that meets your ideal customer profile and they have, and you have engaged them in the first 100 days that they've been on the new job. Why? There's an untouted statistic that in the first 100 days, a decision maker, champion, or influencer, like high decision maker, high champion, or influencer, will deploy up to 70% of the remitted budget, either physically have deployed it or have mentally decided where they're going to put up to 70% of the remitted budget for the year. Because... They get in the door, first two weeks, where's the washroom, figure out where the employees are, and then time to make an impact. And I have to make an impact by the end of that quarter. So that is by far your greatest opportunity. And then there's a whole series of sales plays that go down from there, but still really important. You could be tracking everyone that was hired or promoted. You know, you sell to sellers as well. Imagine um, tracking every head of revenue operations in North America, MENA, you know, APEC, and being there before your competition. Just starting a nurture sequence, and that can be phone, email, LinkedIn, smoke signals, it doesn't really matter. You started an education journey before your competition. Yeah, uh, I can I can see why that would be valuable, especially not just before the competition, but before they get pulled in the the million the myriad of different directions that they get pulled in after those first night first hundred you know ninety hundred days. So that that's super helpful. Um, okay, so we've talked about signals, we've talked about uh, relationship um, intelligence. What tools? Uh, are, are most impactful to identify these signals? How, how do we do this and support this social selling idea? Yeah. So what my company, and I, I am clearly, anybody that knows me is clearly biased to the power of LinkedIn. You know, I invented the word social selling. I pioneered an entire category and ecosystem back in 2011 and 12 on that topic. And I was one of the first to see the power that LinkedIn can have on both prospecting and of course, 
customer retention, upsell, cross-sell, but it has the power of it. It has the left brain and the right brain built right into it. So with that, the ultimate user-generated database on planet Earth that showcases human capital migration, change of people, is LinkedIn. And so my company has, and so I'm biased in that LinkedIn is the ultimate tool. And what we're able to do is every LinkedIn profile is on the public web. And if you know what to look for and you know how to aggregate that intelligence, I can track any buyer, any role, any company around the world and any change at any time. Okay. So in those changes then beget all of that sequence of, of uh, things that, you know, activities that, that you talked about earlier. Yeah. So what we do is we take that intelligence, we turn it into a prescriptive uh, task notification and story, and we route it into our customer CRM. So our customers log into Salesforce, their sellers log into Salesforce or HubSpot and pops up a task. And it says, Jane Smith just left your customer over at Yeti. She's now the chief operating officer over at Igloo Cooler. She was at Yeti from these years to these years or this timeline click here to see their LinkedIn profile. Here's their email, have at it. And that at scale, average seller, average companies receiving 100 to 250 of these a month because the average CRM is depleting at 3% a month. So it, their sales team is just constantly having conversations with their past customers. Mm. Okay. So, um, Let's talk about marketing. We, we, let, let's go there. Let's go to marketing. So let's talk sure. about the role of marketing. How can marketing support sales and social selling? So marketing's best opportunity is if you think of social selling as there's an inbound motion and an outbound motion. The inbound motion is that the sellers need to build strong brands and reputations online. The outbound motion is they have to have compelling conversations. Marketing can help a lot in the development of a content library, the development of uh, some reason, basically a resource library that sellers can leverage to both educate their ecosystem digitally, like sharing content, but as well pick and choose from that content and deliver content to customers all along that buying journey. So after a discovery call, I go into my library, I pick a great resource and I, I send it to a customer. And one of the best parts of the sales cycle to do this between discovery call and close is I call the dead zone. The dead zone is the, that dead, the dead zone, the dead zone, the dead okay. zone is an uncomfortable silence that you get Probably right after discovery when the, you know, when you walk off a discovery call and everybody's all gung ho. Yeah. Yeah. Call me next week. We'll organize these stakeholders. We'll get this next meeting. Next week comes by. Nothing happens. Week after that, nothing happens. Seven weeks later, nothing happens. So the dead zone, one of the best ways to overcome that is you're not emailing every week. So you're ready to buy yet. And then the next week, so you're ready to buy yet. You're deploying bits of value, an article, a video, uh, an ebook. You, you recognize that they have a lot on their plate. There's a lot of other things going on, but you're going to keep them to a top of mind and be you're helping them answer maybe unanswered questions, bringing things together. 
before the show started, before we started recording, uh, recording here, Jamie, you and I were talking about one of your, your most recent posts. I think you just posted like an hour or two ago. And, it, and the opening says, I have a car that doesn't make me an F1 driver. Yeah. Okay, my friend, let's pull it full circle. Um, a, lot of, a lot of stuff here has been talked about. Um, sellers, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And, and listeners, if you're out there going, oh, yeah, pause your, push the pause button right now. Okay, just listen. <laughs> there is a difference between knowing and doing. Jamie, if you had one piece of advice for our listeners to help them get doing, get going, what would it be? So this is, to me, was the most important thing I ever did to grow sales for life from zero to 600 customers. And I'm doing the same thing with my blend signals. Take a sheet of paper and a pen. You do not need anything more than that. And I would like you to write down the name of your best customer. So as an example, if I were to write down right now, I wrote the name Snowflake. Then I want you to draw spider webs that come off of it and ask yourself a fundamental question. Who cares about that story? What you'll notice is that within one degree of separation of that company are people that used to work there are the people you deal with every day at your customer and who they know, vendors and partners, competitors to them. Long of the short is your entire prospecting storyboard resides on this sheet of paper. And this is not done enough between your customer success team and your new biz team. So AEs, BDRs, SDRs. Have a conversation. Who are our best customers? Draw a heat map around those companies and figure out how your customer can get you the next customer. It's so simple and tact, uh, and uh, it's so simple, yet it is the difference between knowing and doing because so few companies will do this. You know, oftentimes the most elegant motions are the most simple, right? It's not the complexity, it's the simplicity with which we attack things and the doing actually causes change. Jamie, man, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being on the show today and sharing your ideas and your thinking around social selling mastery. Thanks for the invite. And sales leaders, take something you've learned from today's show. Apply it to your sales team this month. Go from knowing to doing. Let's go. Uh, and then let us know how it's impacting your sales and your people. We want to hear from you. How is this helping? What's this doing? And listeners, for more from Primary Intelligence and Pipeline Signals, Make sure to check out the show notes at primary-intel.com forward slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe and share so that you never miss an episode. We'll see you next time.